0: Welcome to Gateway Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Gateway Church Doncaster in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information about Gateway Church, please visit our website, gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk. Thank you for listening. Over the past few weeks, since January we've been continuing to look at this passage out of Isaiah 6, where Isaiah, who up until this point had been a fairly normal priest serving in the temple, goes into the temple one day and has a face-to-face encounter with the living God. An encounter that was not customary in those days. And we've looked over the previous weeks at the effect That had on him. And today we come to verse uh, 5 in Isaiah 6. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. I don't know about in this day and age, but certainly not that long ago, if you went to see your doctor complaining you were feeling a bit under the weather, the chances are that as part of that examination, he would ask you to stick your tongue out. Now, it seems an odd thing to do, but over the years, doctors had discovered that you can tell a great deal from the state of your tongue. It often reveals clues that helps the doctor give an accurate diagnosis of what's wrong with you. Your tongue somehow seems to be an indicator of the whole person. And just as that's true in a physical sense, it's true in a spiritual sense as well. Our tongues, or perhaps more specifically the words that we speak, are actually very revealing about our spiritual well-being. What we talk about all the time, what spills out of us in those unguarded moments, is a good indicator of what's occupying our thoughts and what's really going on in our hearts. Jesus talks about that. In Luke 6, verse 44, he says, Each tree is recognised by its own fruit. People don't pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. The words we use, and to some extent even those we don't use, help define our character, because they disclose and reveal exactly what we're thinking what we're feeling and even to some extent what we're becoming as people in proverbs 18:21 we read the tongue has the power of life and death and those who love it will eat its fruit our speech is that influential potentially It can be both creative or destructive. It has a powerful effect, and not only on our own life and destiny, but on that of others as well. We all know that schoolyard saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. What a load of cobblers. What a load of rubbish. Don't believe it. Words are among the most damaging things that you can inflict on another person. Just think for a moment of the emotional damage that wrong words do from the lips of abusive parents. Think of the effect of those words that come from some hurtful school teachers or cruel enemies. Think for a moment of those words that even friends may say in a hurtful moment. Some of them have caused wounds that may not even have healed now. Now, life and death are opposites. And our speech can lead to one or the other outcome. (coughs) Words define your character. They reveal it. If you want to know what you're really like inside, take a note of the words that come out of your mouth. Here's Isaiah. He'd been serving in the temple for many years, and suddenly he recognises to being a person of unclean lips. He realised he'd been bad people. He'd probably bad himself. Bad-mouthed others and who knows he may have even badmouthed God. And then in the presence of this pure holiness of God, he had to acknowledge that what came out of his mouth wasn't godly, it wasn't clean and it wasn't appropriate. So he confessed he had a dirty mouth. Are we prepared to acknowledge the same at times? Because it calls for quite a rigorous self-examination and a lot of honesty. But actually, spiritually speaking, it's helpful for all of us to stick our tongues out once in a while and let the doctor examine it, the great physician. In fact, I would say... That if we were going to be moulded into the kind of men and women that God wants us to be, that this is essential. Because these words that come out of our mouth indicate the state of our hearts. They'll show us our bad attitudes. They'll show us our wrong beliefs. They'll tell us where we hold bitterness, anger or envy. And all that stuff is probably lying just slightly concealed below the surface. You know, it's interesting but the devil has helped us make a whole vocabulary of debased sexual words. Why? Because he wants to bring down what was intended to be one of God's greatest gifts to us and make it something low and awful. What ought to be a pure spiritual bonding within marriage, a gift of heaven, has become something that is warped and distorted just by the very words we use to refer to that act of sexual union. The most common swear words and curses you hear in our culture are sexual ones. And they all degrade that creative design for men and women, turning what was beautiful into something which is filthy. And so sometimes we need to confess our deep-seated problems to God and let Him bring cleaning. We need to stop hiding behind excuses we make and take the medicine so that God can bring healing. And then, along with Isaiah, we can begin to speak God's words of life into others. The Apostle James had a lot to say about the mouth. In his epistle, in James 3, verses 5 and 6, he writes, The tongue is a small part of the body. It is a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person. It sets the whole course of his life on fire. What James is saying is literally every sin we commit eventually comes to expression through our tongues. For example, if we're feeling irritable and angry with someone, it will show up when we raise our voice or start shouting at them. It will show up when we start being rude, insulting or critical. If we're feeling lustful, it will show up in the types of jokes and inappropriate remarks we make. It will show up in our soft words as we try and seduce others. Even crimes like murder, theft, embezzlement, violence, actually are all only moved forward because of speech, because people need to communicate with each other. People use words to slander each other, to discredit each other. The list just goes on and on. And we can also express unbelief through making cynical comments about reported wonders of things that God is doing around the world. By arguing with his word. We can diminish someone else's experience of God by negating the healing that they've found in their lives. By trivializing it. Just because we haven't seen it with our own eyes. We haven't personally experienced it. Some people curse their own children or crush their partners. Ridiculing their abilities, belittling them. Maybe even mocking their Christian faith. But all of us from time to time use our mouths to harmful effect. whether it's the boss who shouts at his subordinates, whether it's the teenager who lies to his parents. And then, what about those superficial prayers we've prayed? The easy promises we've made to God? The commitments we've made to other people? What about those things that we say to fellow believers that, actually just simply aren't true. How about the times we sing wonderful hymns and truths insincerely? All these are symptoms that there's something diseased below the surface, and it's the tongue Is giving us that guide to the heart. It's the gauge that tells us our spiritual temperature. And Isaiah knew this, and he knew he needed to be cleansed. And so he said, woe to me! Now we live in a blame-shifting culture. Whenever anything bad happens, it's someone else's fault. It's certainly not mine. We find it easy to identify with the wrongs that other people have done. We find it easy to deflect judgment away from ourselves. We read the newspaper, we listen to the news, and we... (sighs) We tut and we shake our heads in judgment over what other people are doing. We're quick to judge and criticize politicians and yet we're blind to what's going on in our own lives. Isaiah, after he'd been devastated by walking into the presence of God, he had to be cleansed by him. Because otherwise he wouldn't be in a position later to talk about the woes of his contemporaries. Woe to the land grabbers, woe to the drunkards, woe to the evildoers, woe to the moral revolutionaries, woe to the intellectually arrogant, woe to the corrupt judges. And you can read all about those things in Isaiah as it goes on. But first of all, the reaction of the man who later uttered these words shows that when he saw God in his blazing holiness he realized first of all he had to pronounce that judgment on himself and so he stood before God and said woe to me and that is the crux of the issue if we haven't seen the truth about ourselves we're not ready to be trusted with the truth about other people Until we've been devastated by the sin in our own life and until we've pleaded for God's mercy and cleansing then our words to others will just be hollow and self-righteous accusation. We first of all have to encounter God. The Christian writer Tozer said I believe but there is little sense of sin among the saved. And the average Christian lives a life so worldly and careless, but it is difficult to distinguish from the unconverted. How often that's true. But equally, there's a sense of tenderness that comes into the hearts of men and women who've been into the presence of God. When they've been compelled to say, woe is me. The words that they speak are so different and they carry so much more weight. Some church leaders promote a message that boosts people's self-esteem, enhances their dignity, Maybe even brings an inappropriate can-do mentality, but with a lack of dependence on God. Now this, this can be helpful productive for some who for a variety of reasons may have low self-esteem or have had negative lies going around their heads for far too long. But it isn't helpful if that is the only message ever preached. That's not a healthy approach. The spiritual healthy place to be, at least for a while, is where we see ourselves as we really are before God and ask him to remake us. Now this word woe, Isaiah keeps using this word woe. You know, it's a much more expressive word than it is in common everyday usage today. In in fact, it almost disappeared from our vocabulary, except that it's used as a sort of humorous theatrical cliché. But for the prophet, in the Old Testament, it was one of the most powerful weapons he had in his arsenal. Its usage always preceded an announcement of judgment, and it was typically an indictment of the sins of either individuals or nations. Sometimes that indictment promised a blessing if the warning was heeded. But other times, actually the chance for repentance had already gone, had already been forfeited and there was a curse to follow. Jesus himself pronounced both blessings and curses and he used this phrase in the same way Isaiah did. In the Beatitudes, Jesus pronounces God's favour. Blessed. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. But in Matthew 23, he also proclaimed, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You do not yourselves enter. Nor will you let those enter who are trying to. And there's loads of other examples as you go through the New Testament. Now when God says woe, it's an announcement of doom. It's certain and it's inevitable. And it's the result of a lifestyle that's been rebellious towards him. In the Bible, entire cities and whole nations had woe to you pronounced over them. Sometimes smaller groups did as well. You can read about that in Numbers 21, Jeremiah 13, Ezekiel 13, Hosea 7, and Amos 5 or 6. There's at least 22 pronouncements of that kind in the book of Isaiah alone. And Christ himself used that phrase 25 times. But that does not mean that individuals aren't at risk Isaiah's experience clearly demonstrates. Isaiah admitted, I'm one of those with unclean lips, and all my fellow citizens are too. He began to describe his failings to God without having to be told specifically what they were. He knew what they were, and he knew he deserved to die. So what could he say? I am ruined. Now, any one of us might have argued with Isaiah at this point and encouraged him to have a slightly more positive outlook on life. Come on, Isaiah. You're in a church. You're a child of God. Come on, don't be so negative. Name it and claim it, brother blab it and grab it come on make a positive statement about yourself but actually all Isaiah could see at that moment was the solemn truth Jeremiah declares let not the wise man boast in his wisdom or the strong man boast of his strength or the rich man boast of his riches Isaiah saw it as it was he then goes on and names three of the most common grounds for a sense of security or even superiority our wisdom our might and our wealth three things that actually delude us when in reality they should be gifts of God's grace towards us. Our intelligence, our strength, our material means often hide serious problems in our life and our actions because each one of them can trigger trust in ourself rather than God. And so God has to humble us with the truth by showing us the reality (coughs) of our inner rebellion against him. That kind of experience that Isaiah went through has been true for loads of great men and women through Christian history. If you read the testimonies of Augustine of Hippo, Martin Luther, John Bunyan, John Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, Spurgeon, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Billy Graham, Gladys Aylward, Jackie Pullinger and many more, you'll find that at some point they came under the overwhelming conviction of the reality and the corruption of their own lives. And then, when they had truly encountered God, he gave their ministry a new focus. A new focus that enabled them to unmask the same problem in other people's lives. And gave them the treatment for it that is found in the Gospel. In the 1930s in Dundee, a young pastor by the name of Robert Murray Machane saw an amazing move of God in his church. Hundreds of people were converted to faith in the space of just a few weeks. And the church congregation just swelled. And later someone said to him, what is the greatest need of this church? now he could have answered all sorts of things he could have said well we need better facilities we need more finance we need better music there's a whole range of things that we could easily count important today in relation to church growth but he replied my personal holiness by which he meant the life-changing result of an awesome encounter with God in his own life. Isaiah saw God. Suddenly he felt like a leper. A leper who lived in a colony of equally unclean men and women like himself. He realized up until this point, when he thought he was ministering in the temple, he was actually just spreading the problem. He hadn't prevented the disease in others' life. In fact, he'd made other people dirty. He was a carrier, not the cure. He saw with a shock that he was a major part of the problem. If we make an honest and sober assessment of the years during which we followed Jesus can we say we've always acted as medicine for sin among our family, our friends and our neighbours or have we sometimes been carriers and spreaders of the disease? We need to come to the point where we honestly answer that question. Otherwise we can't move on. The American theologian R.C. Sproul wrote, For the first time in his life, Isaiah really understood who God was. At the same instant, for the first time, Isaiah really understood who Isaiah was. In the flash of a moment, Isaiah had a new and radical understanding of sin. He saw that it was pervasive in himself and everyone else. Some have called this point in Isaiah's experience but disintegration factor. Integrity means wholeness. Disintegrity or disintegration means to be broken into pieces. And Isaiah had to be broken before God, before God could put him back together. He was literally shattered. He was shattered by that experience. And humanly speaking, there was no way he was going to get his life back together. Some of us work very hard at trying to hold our lives together at one level or another. We have areas in our lives where things aren't working well. In order to bring our lives to restoration in the end, at times, God is forced to completely break us. We need to come to the end of any misguided hope that trust or reliance on ourselves will bring that somehow in the light of the truth of God all these popular words that are hyphenated and start with the word self go into insignificance self esteem it can be a hard experience But if it hasn't yet happened to you, I want to congratulate you for escaping it. But actually, I hope it happens to you sooner rather than later. Because it will be the making of you. Because in God's economy, the breaking of a person is the making of a person. We have to die before we can live. We have to lose before we can gain. We have to give up before we can go on. And we have to go lower before God can take us higher. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, The worst thing that can happen to a man is for God to grant him success before he's ready for it. There are times when everything you thought was in place in your life was comfortable and predictable begins to unravel. You know how it is. The routine of your life's great. Your partner loves you. The kids are doing well and they're safe. You're eating well. You're sleeping well. Life's never been so good. And then everything goes pear-shaped. It starts to come apart around you and there's nothing, absolutely nothing you can do to stop it. I know at the times that's happened to me, I've sometimes thought of that illustration of a tapestry. Whilst appearing on the front to be something well-crafted and beautiful, when you look at the back, It's an incomprehensible jumble of threads of different colours that have to come together to complete the picture on the other side. Now the tapestry of your life might have an attractive pattern to it. You might be quite pleased with it. But then when a divine hand starts picking threads out of the canvas, the whole thing that once looked so beautiful can soon hang in shreds. In fact, it can look like it's been vandalised. But then, the hand of God begins to reweave it, to put the threads back again, but in a different pattern. And this time, you'll find woven into it threads of silver and of gold. Something that enrich its beauty and its elegance. In his book, the making of a leader, Frank damasio talks about these phases as being preparation that is essential for those who God intends to use. And that is to one extent or another, after all, all of us. It's a good thing to be pulled apart when God is doing the pulling. And then here, in this single moment, Isaiah changed his mind about everything he thought about himself, about everything he thought about the world, and it shifted. And it came into line with God's perceptive. Now the Bible calls this repentance. And this act of repentance was for Isaiah a radical act of reassessment looking at himself in the light of God's supreme being and burning purity C.S. Lewis said God is the only comfort. He is also the supreme terror, the thing we most need and the thing we most want to hide from. Some people talk as if meeting the gaze of absolute goodness would be fun. They need to think again. They are still only playing with religion. Isaiah's new start, this dramatic conversion, began with an honest confession. We see a man in a heap on the floor, in a dishevelled mess before God. A man in torment. But the man who got up sometime later became a truly unique an astonishing personality who walked across the pages of history and touched the lives of thousands of people. His voice was one that sounded so clearly in his generation that we are still listening to it today. In the Christian life we discover that the best place to start serving God Is on our faces. We start from the bottom and work up. But Peter put it like this in his epistle. God opposes the proud. But gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself therefore. Under God's mighty hand. That he might lift you up in due time. Have you seen it yet? This breathtaking liberty of coming clean about sin. We need to bring things out in the open. We need to agree with God. We need to confess before him and bring them under the blood of Jesus and then ask the Holy Spirit to empower us to walk free of them. We need to stop trying to defend the indefensible. We need to stop making excuses for the inexcusable. The only remedy is the cross. Have you been there? Have you been there lately? Or are you still going to do it your own way? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a man who died for his faith, Under the orders of Adolf Hitler, just days before the end of the conflict in Europe in World War II, said, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Dying to yourself isn't pleasant. It's painful. But it's necessary if you want God to really equip you to have influence in a dying world. Just think for a moment about the areas of your life that need to be cleansed. The Spirit of God brings the grace that flows from Jesus' sacrifice right to where you are so that your sin can be atoned for. And your guilt taken away. The good news. Dirty mouths. Dirty hearts. And dirty lives. Can be made clean again. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Don't forget to visit gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk.